Welcome to the Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day, and particularly the power of governments and companies. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And today, I'm talking with Caitlin. Hi. Caitlin and I are going to uh, do a bit of a shorter podcast today, just to focus on the latest news and emerging developments around the world. But of course, with a strong emphasis on what's going on with COVID-19 and the responses we're seeing from governments and companies. So Caitlin, what do you got for us? So one of the things we have at the moment is we've been uploading loads of stories to our tracker because we've been tracking all of the stories we've been finding around the world from different governments, from different companies, the things they've been doing. So we've been uploading a bulk of them just this week. And some of the really interesting ones at the moment are coming out of India, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so I, I, I had a fascinating call with, um, there's a great organization in India called the Center for Internet and Society. And I, I, I vow that we will have them on this podcast because they're just such an amazing organization doing such amazing work under extraordinary circumstances when you have a government like the current government in India and the broad range of challenges they have, say, around their ID system or uh, around COVID. And so what was interesting is that there's been a lot of media coverage about well, first, India had this rush to lockdown, which disadvantaged large amounts of people who had to essentially find their ways back to their their homes that might be hundreds of miles away by foot. And then um, in its grand wisdom, the government introduced an app to essentially do contact tracing. The app doesn't seem overly sophisticated. It, it involves an element of um, GPS and Bluetooth, but for some, re- okay, I'll, I'll try to be tempered here. For some reason, they were tempted to make it mandatory for particularly government officials and then any employees going back to work. And there was even a plan to make it mandatory for people getting on transportation. Which is wild because we discussed in previous podcasts how some apps just don't work on some phones. So because of the way that iOS uh, on iPhones and Android on like most other phones works, most of the kind of government-led apps that aren't using Apple and Google's API just don't really function well, if at all, on you know certain versions of those operating systems. In fact, most versions of those operating systems. And, you know, and there's actually saying that there's an even more fundamental problem, particularly in places like India. You don't have a smartphone, you can't use the app. Don't have a smartphone, suddenly you can't use public transportation or you can't go to work, which is a significant flaw in that and and something that will massively exacerbate pre-existing inequality. Yeah, and it it also applies since I was reading these fascinating articles uh, in India about how... um, kids doing distance learning they're doing them from mobile phones and they're doing it from their parents mobile phones and so either you go to work with your phone or and your kid does not get educated or you stay at home and don't get paid so your kid can get educated these are just not wise 
it's not wise for the government to make people make these types of decisions. Fortunately, there's been some pushback against this. And I was informed that there was a court in Kerala that said that this wasn't a good practice. And so now the government's reconsidering. But there are two follow-ons from this. Like the first is, of, of course, the 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 inequity of uh, of the distribution of phones and who has phones and and all of that. But also, how the hell do you enforce this? Do you stop everybody about to walk into a building and make sure they have a phone that has an app running on it, and not even verifying whether the app is functional on the on the phone because again as you rightly said getting these apps to actually work on phones is very very hard but yeah the enforceability it, it, it just sounds like it's it's a clever idea some some policymaker had but they never actually thought about you know does it work and how do we make sure that we don't look like fools trying to implement this and some people there were loads of stories about people in india who were already working out ways around it like taking screenshots of the app with a little it's got like a status reading, I guess, a bit like the one in China that had QR codes that said if you were safe to be out or not. And people were screenshotting the green version and using that as like the background of their phone. So if they got stopped by police, they could be like, here, I'm fine. Which is one of those things that like, I'm sure public health wise is not great, but I kind of, I'm impressed by the speed and ingenuity of people's response to such a kind of mandatory dodgy requirement. It's the incredibly human response, and I love it. It's the human response mediated by technology. That's that's much more genuine than having to carry around an app that won't actually work on your phone, that we're not entirely sure actually accomplishes anything that it's supposed to, but we better because the cop is going to stop me from getting on the train. Yeah, and I think I think the implementation originally kind of comes down to a similar thing where it's like, it's a fairly human thing to look at your world and look at what would work for you. And I think that's a problem policymakers are having all over the place is they look at, you know, the way that they live their lives and kind of expand it outwards rather than looking the way that people in general, particularly those most vulnerable, actually live their lives and their experiences and going from there. If you're a government official, maybe you do have a better phone and it hasn't occurred to you, or maybe you don't use public transport and it hasn't occurred to you that people don't have phones or people have to make the choice between leaving their kid at home with a, a device they can use for education and being able to get to work. Those aren't choices they've had to make and those aren't things that would ever be in opposition for them. I think one of the problems is people kind of making policy from where they're sitting rather than looking at where everyone else is and going from there. Absolutely. Oh my God, I wish, but that's exactly it. It's like um, I've, I, I've been in meetings where it's presumed that the person using the app knows exactly what the intention of the policymaker was when the app was divined by their minds versus most people when you tell them hey here's an app to deal with covid they're thinking oh you mean this will help me get access to x or this will help me get a test or this will help me um, be able to understand why i'm feeling this way and what i should be doing no it's got none of that in mind Instead, these apps are just what these policymakers want, which are tools for enforcement. I think it's also worth remembering, even if the apps worked perfectly, even if the apps worked in all of the operating systems, and even if, you know, they worked as intended, a lot of the people who are going to use them or need to be using them will be older. And not to be patronising, but my mom is fairly 
she's fairly decent with technology. She's not that old, but still trying to explain certain things to her takes time and effort. And it can be frustrating because certain things aren't that obvious. And with a lot of these apps, you would have to leave them open all the time with your Bluetooth on. Unless you have those instructions set out very clearly in lots of different ways, for a lot of people, that won't be obvious and that won't be easy to do. They'll just, I think a lot of people would assume you download an app, it works. Yeah, exactly. Magic. And if, if, you, if you aren't developing something like that, which none of these people broadly are, potentially the Apple Google API will work differently, but you really have to think, okay, who's going to be using it? How will they use it? How will they expect it to work versus how does it work? What do they need to know? And from what we've seen, at least from the NHS version of the app that we've done testing on, like it's way too basic to include a lot of that information of just how it works, how to use it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's what's getting crazy now is uh, the at least in the UK when they're trying to do this unlocking of the lockdown even as the status of the app is increasingly uncertain because of all these issues, the importance of the app has somehow accelerated dramatically because, oh, well, it has to be in place uh, for the politically set deadlines of releasing the lockdown, which has very little to do with the state of, uh, of the medical response, the, the, the readiness of the country or the readiness of employers or the readiness of the infrastructure, but there shall be an app and the app will work just fine. We think we don't really care as long as there's an app to download. And then there was that interesting news yesterday that just kind of blew at least things out of water here in the United Kingdom, which was one of the countries in the United Kingdom, being Northern Ireland, has decided to go rogue and not use the UK government app and instead to use the app of the Republic of Ireland, which is like, this is politics at a completely different level, all exercised through an app. Yeah, and I I think... It, it's another thing that's like an extension of politics almost as normal. So if you don't know the context of the UK and its relationship with Ireland. How do you do this in a short podcast? Oh my gosh, then we don't, we're not going to cover all I of that. I can't it. wait to hear the, answer, the end of this sentence or <laughs> paragraph. or. Chapter. We're not going to cover all of it in this podcast. But So the island of Ireland is, as it stands, two countries. There's Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Ireland, the country, and there's Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. There has been a long history of conflict over whether that should remain true. There's also ever since, you know, I think the Good Friday Agreement, and in the same way there is with all the other nations in the UK, so with Wales and Scotland, they all feel a bit overlooked. And you can see that in the way that the union is kind of being strained, let's say, by COVID-19 policymaking. So Scotland and Wales have both decided to not use the new messaging coming from the UK, which is changing from stay home to stay alert. They've, you know, and and in more and more ways, all those policies are like breaking off from each other and making England its own kind of making policy for itself, uh, where it was intended to make policy for the whole of the UK. So this app, which was was not was created without talking or thinking about the Republic of Ireland and without considering the kind of importance of cross-border movement in the island of Ireland, it's just so short-sighted because, you know, if you live in 
the kind of border region on the island of Ireland, you move across that border all the time. It, like you can have a house in one on one side of the border and a garden on the other. It's that kind of fluid, let's say. So if you're doing a public health response and you're looking at the island of Ireland, the notion that contact tracing would be reasonably you know, separable, considering so many people work on one side of the border or the other, is so incredibly short-sighted. Even if you were doing entirely manual contact tracing, those two things are going inevitably to be interlinked. Like with Wales, at the moment, in England, you can drive to exercise. But now if you cross the border into Wales, which a load of people do all the time, then you are on the wrong side of the law. And wasn't there a story about there was like a golf course that that bridges both yeah yeah it's it's one half on one side half on the other and they're trying to work out what to do it's like there was a story a while ago about a shop that was i think one side in one country in the eu and one side in the other and one side one country had locked down the other country hadn't so half the shop was closed and half the shop was open and it's a similar thing like people drive across into there's this massive bridge across the border into wales and people drive across it all the time to go to work and vice versa so people are going from wales to england where their jobs are and where they're being encouraged to go back to work but to do that they have to leave wales where they're being told to stay home and not to go back to work so what are those people supposed to do and like it that kind of short-sightedness lack of consultation lack of consideration for the fact that each each nation in the uk is its own nation um, has has spilled over it technologically in a way that's kind of like if you thought about those nations as anything more than an afterthought you would have considered and it's kind of enraging and you can see why each Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland like have a beef with the government of England because how could they not have considered those factors? I was in a, um, a briefing a few days ago by Google and Apple, they were talking about their API and the upcoming launch, which occurred uh, just on Wednesday evening. And they were saying, yes, uh, they're only going to approve one app per country. And then I, and they, uh, they said, but of course, there are some countries, you know, such as India or even uh, Canada, where provinces might have different responses. And this was on Tuesday afternoon when the thought that that kind of rule would apply to the United Kingdom was just amusing. And then by Wednesday, we hear the minister say, actually, yeah, it's going to apply to, to the United Kingdom too. It's just it, This moves fast. This moves really fast. It really does. And it's kind of interesting, again, going back to India. So one of their provinces had a quarantine enforcement app, uh, Madhya Pradesh. So they had like a dashboard with loads and loads of real specific personal information of lots of people who were supposed to be quarantining, including their, I think their GPS location within five meters and like their name and stuff. And all of that was leaked. There was a massive data breach, which obviously wasn't the intention, but is a problem where you're storing that much personally identifiable information about something that is incredibly sensitive. So if you're supposed to be quarantining for COVID-19, there is a strong chance that if people find out your name and who you are and exactly where you are, discrimination is a significant concern. Absolutely. And this is, I think now that we're coming to the point in, in countries' responses that we're unlocking, we need to urgently remember what it was like right before we did the lockdown. And I was reading stories about whether it is South Korea or Germany or various parts of the United States where you would hear of these small outbreaks the very human and dark side of humanity response to those outbreaks was 
was horrific. Like there was this case in Germany where um, there was a religious gathering in, in a town whose name I can't remember that where there was an element of an outbreak. And then that was reported in the media. And then anybody from the rest of Germany who was from that region would, you know, of course, face discrimination, but also cars that were registered to that region were having their tires slashed around uh, across Germany. Because it, it, it's, it's amazing how quickly in these moments of sickness and quarantining and panic, we turn against each other. Like, of course, there are those stories as well about discrimination of a racial type based on where people are coming from or where they look like they come from. It can be as local as, well, that building over there has somebody who's sick in it, so I'm going to hate everybody coming out of that building because I'm going to presume that they've got the virus. This is an incredibly human response, and we have to manage this incredibly well, which is why we don't openly publish this type of information. Yeah, and it's one of the problems with the centralised versus decentralised debate. There are lots of privacy issues, blah, blah, blah. There are lots of concerns. But one of the most fundamental is if you centralise all that information and there's a data breach, that is a huge, huge problem because it's incredibly difficult to properly anonymise that information. If you don't collect it, it can't get breached. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Do we have any non-COVID related news or um, is this just... Oh, yes, we do. Kind of. Kind of. It counts. I'm counting it because it's, I don't know, it makes me a little bit happy. It's um, the it's the birth GDPR's birthday on oh. Monday. It's the General Data Protection Regulation's second birthday on Monday. GDPR is hard for us in the sense that we've been working on the, the redevelopment of GDPR since like 2010. We were involved in the early consultations. We were at so many of the core meetings. We worked across civil society to create coherent uh, and cohesive responses. Um, and uh, like with any piece of legislation that you push for, you're never going to be happy with the ultimate result. But when it comes to data protection law, There's an additional layer, which is, and I think the environmental movement was faced this also, which is even if you get a law, and even if it is the most perfect law, the pain is in the implementation and enforcement. And that is getting the enforcers to actually do the enforcement. It's hard for us to celebrate something that its its birthday is only the beginning of the struggle. But two years ago, uh, we promised our supporters then that you know, would would use it. And we sure have used it because <laughs> we've used GDPR for everything from um, complaining to the regulator and they started an investigation on data brokers. I think those investigations are now on hold because of COVID-19, but nonetheless, at some point, hopefully there will be some enforcement activity. <laughs> we used it in our investigation of like thousands of the most popular apps on the app store sharing data with Facebook and then again in our work on menstruation apps both of which ultimately led to loads of companies stopping sharing really dodgy amounts of data with Facebook including some menstruation app would ask you to to do diary entries essentially about your period and about you know how you're feeling and they were sending that information to Facebook we did a ton of research and used GDPR about mental health websites and how they're also sharing way more than they should with Facebook and with other, you know, with other third parties. We, we used it in our work on, we just use it all the time in our work on data and political campaigns and welfare and migration and sexual and reproductive rights. And hopefully we'll be able to, we hopefully it's a really useful framework for pushing governments back 
on their responses to COVID-19 and, you know, in companies and the way that they're responding to COVID-19. So, you know, we're pleased we have the law. We've been using it a great deal. It needs stronger enforcement. We'll be pushing for that too. When like, we're not done with GDPR. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this uh, shortened uh, podcast where we covered the news and uh, we'll be back to you soon. Our next podcast is going to cover identity and uh, identity systems and the challenges of identity systems, looking particularly at the case of Kenya, where we'll have some uh, guest experts who will talk us through what it is like to live in a country that demands ID of you constantly and you don't have one. Like and subscribe to the podcast on any of the platforms that you uh, you would normally use. And now our podcast is currently available on our website. So come to the website, privacyinternational.org. You can also sign up to mailings and including a mailing that we have specifically that deals with COVID-19 related news and response by going to action.privacyinternational.org. Music is courtesy of Sepia.